You're listening to District Durkas. Durka, Durka, Muhammad Jihad. So, a Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama, and a Durka from Algeria, that's Lilia. Aloha. We live in the District of Columbia and we get together every week to decipher the Middle East, the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc., and all the prisms and schisms in between. We have a special episode that happened to be accidentally timely for today. We are going to first start our show like we usually do in the past few episodes where we talk about current events that grabbed our attention from the Middle East or in relation to the Middle East. And then we're going to segue into a subject. And for this week, we chose the American dream. And um, I think it's a timely subject. And we'll tell you why after we get into our current events. I don't even know why. Is it because of the 4th of July? Well, no, today's <laughs> going to go down as a very important day in history. Oh, all right. And we're, ge- we're getting to that. We're warming up to that. All right, all right, all right. So to those who are listening live to us, our entire show is broadcasted from Full Service Radio here in Adams Morgan. And we are going to begin by talking about... Oh, w- well, um, we're going to start with um, this ex... Army, uh, is he a veteran? Is he a, a former soldier? I think he's a sergeant. And uh, he used to be part of the KKK, and he was also deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he has been meeting with a Syrian Kurd. So we're going to talk a lot about identity, like, but I want to frame it within the idea of the American dream. So you have this guy who's um, devoted his life to hating the other, specifically African-Americans, but most importantly Muslims, because in the article, like, he expresses the fact that even though he got over his, uh, so, his disdain of, you know, African-Americans, the one thing that he couldn't get rid of was being Muslim. And according to what he's saying is he has been trained to cultivate this hate against Muslims, which, you know, helped during the, the conflicts that he was sent to. Involved in, yeah. Exactly. So that would be, you know, his, this is his parkour. And then on the other side, you have this Syrian Kurd who well, fled. Hold on. Before we get any further, just to clarify to our audience, this is a story that was written in the Washington Post, and it revolved around Chris Buckley, who was former military, like yeah. you mentioned, and was also kind of in the Klan. He um, was in the Klan. And then, and then he declined. Yeah, he kind of changed positions. And when you hear about, he just, he got out of the Klan in 2016. So these are very recent developments in his life. Yeah, so the Klan, being part of the Klan helped him hate the enemy that the U.S. is fighting in Afghanistan, which is unknown to them. Yeah, he was born in a white supremacist family. His father used to beat him and teach him the ways of racism. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not something that he stumbled upon yeah, later naturally. on in life. It was something, it was in it his was part background. of his upbringing. Yes, and so then we have the other dude who's Kurd and Syrian and a refugee who escaped Syria to come here in 2001, 10 days after 9-11, which 
the parallel is Buckley, the soldier. That's when he was deployed in the Middle East. So you have these competing narrative mm -hmm. that end up in Georgia meeting to see what do they have in common. And so because we're talking about the American dream, this Syrian Kurd refugee actually ended up being a cardiologist. He was a doctor. Whereas this American soldier lives in dire poverty in, in like a two, in, in so, a one bedroom, like in a one space. I don't know how to call it when you only have one room with two kids and your wife and a past addiction. Like the, so their, their realities are different. Yes. Even though one comes from a dire situation initially, one comes from, you know, being persecuted as a Kurd in Syria and fleeing a catastrophe. And one comes from the land of plenty, the land of the free. And do they forge a friendship? I think it was their first meeting. In the article. It was, yeah, it was their first meeting and they were warming up to getting the soldier guy to go to a Ramadan iftar. To, apparently Trump has, um, he kind of dropped that idea that Obama had cultivated of having an iftar. Yeah. And this Kurd wanted to pick that up and, and make it a thing. And he invited Mr. Buckley to his dinner. I don't know if you've checked the article at all and it, it You mentioned the tattoo of the guy he has uh, in yeah. Arabic letters, infidel. I thought it was kind of funny. It was crazy because, okay, so to him, he wanted to show to the other, you know, dirty ass Arabs that they could read on his arm that he was the infidel that the imams warned them about. So he goes into this other world with these counter-strike ideas. I don't know if you know the video game. Yeah. So, you know, ready to kill. Yeah. That's I mean, isn't that kind of part and, and, of the mentality that would help you survive? But with a false narrative of like, I'm considered as the infidel, I'm going to tattoo it, this is it, and you're a KKK member. You, I mean, that's, that's kind of my problem with war, though. Like, if, if these fighters weren't going in, looking at the other person as their enemy, then not much is going to get done. You know, yeah, if they're looking at them as their friend. Specifically, the targets that he trained on were women in burqas, And people who are stereotypically Durkas in whatever mind of yeah. whoever staged the training. So th these were his primary targets. I mean, I've, I've, I mean, we're in D.C., so we've met a lot of people who are ex-Marines, ex-military, ex-just um, a lot of military people, really. I've, I've worked with some of them, and I think that it depends on where he's from. Clearly, he's, was he from Georgia? Originally, I think so, yeah. Either Georgia or Kentucky, we have to what is, check. What feeling did you end up with after reading that article? Is there hope? No, I wasn't surprised. I just thought uh, the irony of the situation of someone who comes from, you know, the United States of America, which, you know, we're going to talk about the American dream, and then someone who comes from a conflict, persecution, and one ends up being a cardiologist trying to extend a hand, an olive branch, to this former KKK member who maybe a month ago, he said his last encounter with a Muslim guy in a grocery store, he shoved the, the, the Muslim guy into the potato chip uh, aisle. So he had like a visceral reaction to being Muslim. I mean, right now in America, we're talking... I mean, to being faced with being like, that was more important to him than anything else. And I thought that was interesting. But like the know, religious th aspect, the crusader the aspect of it. Like yesterday, I was watching a video of... An, a Hispanic woman being attacked, just like verbally attacked by another woman telling her to go back to Mexico and that all Mexicans are rapists and uh, drug dealers and stuff like that. And I think that we live in a time where if 
you know, there's rising hate sentiments in general, especially if you are an immigrant, if you are not American. And then it boils down to you not being white. And it's a sensitive conversation only because we are living it at a, you know, 21st century. Everybody knows what they're supposed to know, yet they choose to believe certain aspects of it. And I think it's kind of encouraging that this soldier is still agreeing to meet with the Syrian uh, Kurdish refugee and to kind of give him a chance and is honest and open about his sentiments because th- only through continuous interactions can that kind of mentality go away. I mean, he, he went to other countries, but only as a soldier. He didn't have a chance to know that country as a traveler or as a visitor because I think the experience would have been very different. And on the Kurdish guy side to extend the favor, like extend the dinner for it to take place, for the, the peace to eventually take place. But on the, on the subject of the soldier's tattoo, I thought it was kind of interesting that he thinks, I think in his mind, he thought that if he wrote, if he wrote infidel on his arm in Arabic, which I, I, I don't know how many, like there are Muslims that don't read Arabic, <laughs> you know, and the idea of being infidel or heresy is not unique to Islam. So you could be a Christian infidel. It would still be Kafir. It would still be written the same way. But that's how it was painted, I think, by, you know, the Bush administration. It was very crusade It was, yes. So, and they think, you know, la, 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 la. the imams, like, what imams is he talking about? Yeah. They I mean, warned you I, about I met, the I met someone at Barcelona uh, restaurant on 14th Street who told me that, you know, those religious clerks in Afghanistan, he was also a military who served time in Afghanistan. He was telling me about how those imams are really bad people and that they rape little boys. And I said, yes, maybe. Maybe there are imams out there who rape little boys, just like there are priests out there who molest young boys and rape them as well. But the idea is that, do I judge the entire country based on a religion and then do I judge the entire religion based on an imam and I you know it it was actually my birthday and that conversation didn't go really well because apparently I was being too direct with him and I was asking questions that he was uncomfortable with even though he came to solicit my attention and at the mention of him saying that he he was um, he was military I actually the question that shut the conversation down was did you kill someone before And apparently that was a really rude question to ask. I mean, they'll tell you. No. Eventually they will. I mean, he didn't answer me. He refused to answer me. But I mean, the answer was clearly yes, he did. Um, But the the idea is that, you know, how is that offensive? How is it offensive that I ask you if you killed someone and you're telling me you're in the military, traveled to all these areas, you gave people training and you're high up in a military, like as a military official. Exactly. But then if I ask it, it's rude. But then if you tell me all these things about my culture and my religion and people that you associate with my skin color, um, then how is that not rude? You know, are we here to have an honest conversation? Or are we going to front with each other? A little bit of both. Well, I, I didn't I didn't get any fronters on that uh, in that area. I remember meeting this um, soldier in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And that was that was actually that was scary because he had no idea I was Algerian or Muslim and I was at the bar and he started talking and apparently he had like a tumor that he vanquished but then there was another tumor and he was going home and then he started talking about the goat fuckers wow that he used to slaughter like the there was no there was no filter maybe you should have met that guy because that guy had no qualms about talking about how many people he killed and where was this Atlanta airport (sighs) 
I mean, those people exist. And I, I like to meet them unfiltered because then we can have an exchange. And so he was very ruthless. He went to Israel to get like this tattoo, but it was in Hebrew. I don't know what it said. He didn't um, tell you what it said? I don't remember because there was a lot of tattoos and I was like, do I say... What is it that, that a lot of military people go to Israel for? Israeli, what's the military... I think it's just a question of alliance. He could have done it in Kuwait. I think he was in Kuwait a lot and he was in Israel. I think that's where... The two that's military the bases like that's, at the time. That's where you... Yes. But he was pretty young. He was going back to his family with a tumor, suicidal, addicted. But isn't that He's the sad thing? Like the military, to me, it's like a way to exploit the poor of America. Like a lot of the people who join the military, I mean, there are definitely those who join out of uh, being patriotic and wanting to defend their nation and wanting to do the right thing. And I think 9-11 helped recruit a lot of people who actually want to defend America and protect it. From, or people who have KKK feelings who just want to kill a brown person. I mean, also that. <laughs> but at the same time, I think the way that Background it's set checks. up, I think the way that it's set up is that if you're poor, you serve in the military for a few years and then we can financially support you to go to school or do this or do ABC. Yes. And I think it's that's kind of, of an unfair solution because someone might be, you know, a naive 18 year old might think okay I'll go to war for two years and then that's it I don't have to serve anymore but after two years they might come back and you talk know, about smelly Iraqi soldiers no they might just come who back shit in holes that's you know, what he said I was like excuse us well there hold on they're gonna go they're gonna risk their lives and then they're gonna probably come back with post-traumatic stress disorder God knows what happens I mean I've definitely and met military people who had an experience in Afghanistan and then have come back and become anti-war activists Because they've seen it firsthand and they, yes. they want to prevent like the next generation from being part of that process because they realize that they're being used as tools as opposed to actually defending America, which is what they joined for. And so, I mean, I think we've deviated really far. <laughs> A little bit. But Matt just said he was also very open about the drug intake. Like he had no problem telling me that Christmas was basically like receiving large doses of drugs. So I don't know what was up was with that, that like guy, but family gifts. So, but it was an act of resistance on my part, or so I thought, you know, in the middle of Atlanta airport saying, well, I'm Algerian. And then I was like, maybe it's going to ring a bell that I'm also Muslim. Then it, it didn't. Yeah, he probably doesn't so know what like, Algeria was, is. Exactly. No, he didn't actually. And then I was like, well, I'm Muslim. And then I was like, brace for your life. But nothing happened. Yeah. I just, you know, went to Costa Rica and had a great time. And he didn't do anything or No. No. I mean, that's the thing. I feel well, like... Well, what is he going to do? But at least, I, you know, he's, he poured his heart out about the, those goat fuckers and killing people and being unapologetic and the drugs and how they stank and how they have no hygiene. And he's telling me that as his witness. And then I flip it on him and say, well, guess what? Yeah. I don't smell so bad, do I? So. No, I mean, he obviously approached um, you to talk exactly. to Exactly. So, deviation... So no more. I think it's not that far off, actually, from what we're talking about, because it, we are still talking about a segment of American society that I personally can't relate to very much, but is still trying to achieve the American dream that we're going to actually end up talking about. But to quickly jump back to current events, I'm going to mention something very light and we can segue through this as quickly as possible. And that is uh, King, on, that was like King Abdullah. King Abdullah and Queen Rania of Jordan visited the White House and they made uh, several events where they appear with Donald Trump and the First Lady Melania Trump. And the article that I chose for today was about how both First Ladies were wearing pink for an afternoon tea. Um, and I kind of thought, how ridiculous. Unless it was for no, they breast were, cancer. 
but no, I don't think it was. It was not. They were just wearing pink because they're vaginas. Ladylike, yes. <laughs> they're ladies. And so the thing about that that was kind of upsetting is, you know, they, ha- they would have a lot to talk about, you know? Like the, the King of Jordan meeting with Trump would have a lot to discuss about what's going on in the region. Isn't the King of Jordan like have his second residency in D.C. I see him all the time. He went to school at Georgetown. Exactly. I see Rania all the time shopping in Georgetown. I see the You saw her before? That I see my family. Yes. So what's interesting about Queen Rania is that she is um, of Palestinian descent. And that is something that politically has not been publicized nope. or she hasn't been slandered in that way in, in American media. Because she's pretty. Well, not just that because and it's poised. not politically it's not to the interest of the Republican or conservative side of America to kind of slander her or portray her in that way. Also, because today, yeah. and I use the term slander, not because I think it's slander to be Palestinian, but that is how it is becoming in the, you know, hawkish ultra conservative administration. You know, you have Nikki Haley who just like refuses to listen or hear or acknowledge anything about Palestine. Um, but Jordan is the solution. That's why you don't slander. Basically Jordan is 70% or more, Of, like the p- population ethnically is Palestinian. So Jordan is the solution as far as a lot of countries are concerned. It's like a, a, But not a model really. they're, citizen they're not country there. You know, as, as you know, talking about bans But in America, Palestinians there. Jordan, for example, just announced, you know, during this visit that they won't be accepting any more Syrian refugees. And so typical. They did that with the Palestinians. Well, It's like because you know, ultimately you they're, they're bordering all these countries that are so unstable that threaten Jordan's existence like ultimately Jordan is going to be accountable for whatever these refugees carry out whatever operation happens from their land Jordan is going to have to pay the price for it so they have to be they're treading on a really like it's, they have to be really careful um, and so to me I just kind of wanted to share that the most important story that came out of these two first ladies <laughs> meeting is that they both wore pink um, yes. for for tea time For an afternoon tea party. And they even gave the price of what they were wearing and the brand. And I was like, what am I reading? Yes. What is this? I mean, I love the outfits, but really $3,950 for a dress. Like, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying Queen Rana is, is a known activist. There probably were a lot more things to say about her in that meeting, but they kept it to close. And I mean, but isn't the Trump administration the perfect administration where women are becoming or are going back to being Stepford wives? Heads. Yeah, they're, they're just, you know, you want that beautiful, uh, tall, gorgeous, uh, you know, woman next to you. And I think Queen Rania fits that image perfectly well because she's very stunning. Yeah. And together, it was just kind of like the, the Arab version, <laughs> like appearance-wise, although their politics are very different. It was kind of crazy, that picture where you have Trump and the king and they're signing things, being very serious in suits. And behind them, you have the, you and know, boys woman. loving wives. What's that? I, I don't know. Can we Bring change that, Michelle. please? Can we change that? So on to the next subject, which is the most important in terms of the discussion that we're going to have. And it is that the Supreme Court has kind of legalized the what we used to call the Muslim ban, which is technically a Muslim ban. It's not a Muslim ban. I'll tell you why it's not. It's so not a Muslim ban. Because I'll tell you why it's not a Muslim ban. And it's because the first time that the ban was put in place, it was challenged in court and it was dismissed. And then it was already dubbed at that point the Muslim ban because it had countries from Libya, Iran, Syria, Somalia, and Yemen. So it was a Muslim ban. No, it's a, and it's then, a, it's and a country. And then the second round, the second round, yeah. after they called it the Muslim ban, when it they went back in court, they added... North Korea and Venezuela to the list. 
that way the unfriendly showing to people that it's not just about Muslims. Even the first time around, there wasn't a Muslim ban. It's like, your country is destroyed and we don't want it to spill on our, you know, immaculate shirt. This is what it was. And it just, just so happened to be Muslim because there are targets of like these foreign policies, but it had nothing to do. I mean, it has on some level, but the ban itself is banning countries are such a mess, a hot mess. And they've created this narrative that this hot mess is going to somehow you know, make its way to yeah. the United States and in a way to quell the terrorist menace, you have to ban countries that don't have it together, even though you're participating in why so they're not together. let me tell you why this like is Algeria crazy. is not banned, it's Muslim, Morocco is not banned, a lot of countries in the Middle East are not banned, specifically like war zones. Well, yeah, but the discrimination at first was on countries that were messes that were also Muslim. Yeah. And then the second time around, he decided to include non-Muslim countries. So it was a Muslim ban in the sense that the messes that he chose to ban were at least the first time around are Muslim. But yeah, because that's where the, like, they correlate the notion of being a terrorist is the Middle East. So, I mean, their, you know, their war against terrorism, war against terror is Middle Eastern. It's not Well, let me tell you why these, it's not realistic. It's not, it's, but it's not about being Muslim. It's about, like, the country being destroyed. Well, how many North Koreans do you see in D.C. or in America? No, it's all ridiculous. But at least for the ban for these countries has kind of, it holds water in the sense that they're problematic countries. Is it the way to deal with it? No. Well, let me, let me tell you something that Trump is doing, which I think is hilarious. I, I kind of appreciate Trump for these moments because it's not like the administration was giving visas left and right to these people. Like there was a strong vetting process in place that, you know, if you wanted to come to America, you had to prove that you have $3,000 plus in your bank account and that you had cash on you and you always had an exit, like you always had to book a round trip to prove that you won't stay in the U.S. And what's interesting to me is that way before Trump, like during the Bush time, like at least my experience with, with you know, coming from Yemen is that any Yemeni cannot apply and get the American visa, especially if you are male, if you are under the age of 35, even 40. Danger zone. You, if you're not married, you are completely like, you get an appointment at the consulate to meet with someone who, you know, let's say you're in Lebanon or Yemen or Oman or anywhere, you'd get a visa with the American embassy. You try to go and then you apply and then they set up an, an, an appointment for you, which usually takes months to set up. And then you go and you meet with them and then they'd ask you simple questions like, are you married? What's this? What's that? What are you doing? What do you study? And the process is so intense that most of the times people choose not to go to America for whatever that they need to do. Like whether it's tourism, people don't really think, oh, I'm going to just go travel in America for fun. Um, and then they just, they make the process so hard that whomever makes it to America is like the creme of the creme. Um, and so now by making it an official ban, Trump is kind of, or he did us a favor Correct. in the sense that he brought this conversation to the public yeah. and he made the public outraged about something that the American administration has done for many years. And you've accepted the country is being destroyed, but now you don't accept the ban. It's like, this is exactly where it should be. This is where it's at. Now deal with it. Deal well, with the, the disappointing thing about today, though, is we got the Supreme Court ruling in favor of the ban, which means that for the first time, I think this is why it's historic day, the Supreme Court announced that they will uphold the Trump administration's third ban so this is the third time that they bring it to um to court and the ruling was five to four and it's because of uh trump's appointment 
of Supreme Judge. So the conservatives five to four one. But I think it's kind of risky because now we are legalizing discrimination based on econ- economic uh, situations, mm-hmm. based on color, based on faith. It's just xenophobic. Based on ego contests, North Korea, Trump. I mean... Or Venezuela, like the... Well, the scent of Hugo Chavez still like <laughs> I don't think that causes them to feel a way. Like Ooh, I, said. I love They're feeling Hugo Chavez. Have you ever seen that video of him where he looked Sulfur. At, no, he looked at the camera and he's like, Mist, uh, Mr. President, you are a donkey. You are a burro, Mr. <laughs> President. I was like, thank you, Hugo Chavez. Thanks for being a weirdo. But I mean, here's the thing. I oh, don't no, think Americans... we're communists because we so did two dogs with Hugo. And I don't them. I don't like him. Just okay, FYI. Good. Now we can be balanced again. I don't like him at all. I just I enjoy his humor. He entertains me on the same level that Trump entertains me, except it's scary because I live in a country where Trump rules, um, while Hugo Chavez was far away. But at the same time, I want to say that Americans need to realize that these countries, as destroyed as they are, the refugees don't look at America as like a safe ha- haven. It's just so far away. It doesn't make any sense that they usually look to neighboring Arab countries, and then after that, it'd be Europe. So the, f- the fear that Americans have is really irrational. And I think there needs to be discussions about these fears and why they're there. And, and we're not having those honest conversations. We're having the, you're not supposed to feel this way. This is wrong. This is not what America is. And then you have the other side saying, no, keep them out. We don't want them here. But you don't have a meeting of the minds on some level. Like everybody it seems like it's happening all over the place, though, with the nationalism, too. With the nationalism? Generally, yeah. Like, you have Italy kind of going through the same shit, too, and all across Europe. It's like... Fear of the outsiders. Isn't yeah. that like it a European... Started, it started it's, it's in It's a Greece. European doctrine. I mean, yeah. when you think about it, fascism, Nazism, colonialism, they're just going back to old habits, like old habits die hard. So they're just reverting to I mean, their M.O., and hopefully they will grow them out. I, my money is on that. Not my money. This is so cynical. What is that proverb like this? My, her coffee is on that. You know? Would yes. you put your coffee on it? My tea seems more elevated. So the thing is you have, right, you have Marie Le Pen in France. And then you have um, Germany, which is also drifting, which is the only place that's still kind of centric. But it's also moving to the to the right i guess i don't know and you have American new countries right. and Dur- durka countries who are now facing these immigration issues you know like you were talking about jordan yeah. north africa they're struggling they're struggling definitely. with the influx so. yeah w- nobody wants nobody wants uh, a population that is going to overwhelm their economy you know especially if they're not responsible for that crisis especially and i understand it but at the same time we are in the 21st century we understand what it means to help others and there are ways of helping others without devastating your own economy yes like in clueless share no i don't know what you're talking about never mind no 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 you're talking to the wrong person you know like rsvp (laughs) and rsvp if you put just a little more chairs and everything everybody can have a good time have you not seen this clip, Sama? No. <laughs> I think I sl- I'm not a I, huge Clueless fan. I'm sorry. Should, I think this is relevant, <laughs> and I think we should pull this up immediately. So this is, uh, <laughs> this is from Clueless. This is the uh, whatever RSVP speech. <laughs> um, and yeah, here we go. Sorry to disappoint you guys. Could all oppressed people be allowed refuge in America? Amber will take the composition. Cher will be pro. Cher... Two minutes. So, okay. Like right now, 
For example, the Haitians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down dinner. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. And so, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Very patriotic. I love the music. I, I, love, I love the Hadians. I know. <laughs> Glorious. Um, That's amazing. And, yeah. and to think that that movie had a more powerful impact than what? a lot of a lot of political <laughs> gestures like that. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's the power of... I like her logic. Talking about the American dream. I like her... I like how she simplified everything. She broke it down. Did she, though? She... She's like, we can just pull another table. Yeah. You can rearrange things. You can make it happen. You know, the analogy's not so bad, though. I know. (laughs) Just saying. And also, just to mention, Haiti's also one of the countries that is currently under TPS review. Oh, is that right? Yes. uh, Haiti's one of 10 countries that is they're thinking of extending their temporary protected status in the US. So, I mean, I guess if you're not American, it's a pretty rough time for you right now. And if you're in a bad place, I think the message that America's sending to the world is that we don't give a shit. Sorry for swearing. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is that we're sending a message that, you know, you may be messed up. We're not there to care about it. We're okay. here to protect ourselves. Is it sending a message or is it painting a crisis that everything is out of control, okay? I think it's sending a message because it's been out of control. But it's going back to, you know, the pre, like kind of the Roosevelt years, the non-interventionist United States, like being isolationist. But that's not what they're presenting. But that was the successful times in in some people's minds. I I hope like they're on the decline, but that's the idea. So the isolationist... To protect America, you have to, you know, you know, isolate yourself and if there's a problem you just put it you know you just kept it i don't, I don't think that trump is an isolationist because he's not cutting no, he's ties. a traitor but it's a trader traitor yeah let's Trade. be careful I was like, that is a joke. huge statement <laughs> <laughs> with a d let's, be, just let's like, be clear but he's riffing off like these general ideas so he's a businessman to simplify the traitor part um he is so he's a globalist in that sense but well that's the thing he is participating in wars and conflicts. He is extending an arm to North Korea, but he's not willing to do so with other countries. So he's more selective. It's like based on his own terms kind of thing, as opposed to isolationist mentality. Also, Republicans are not isolationists, you know? But he is. He's, he's presenting that idea that business is good and in terms of politics, um, you know. I wish I was more versed in economics because I can tell you that whatever he's doing to reduce imports from Canada and China are going to hurt the U.S. Yeah, but bad. politically, it's good in the collective mind to think that you've taken action to get rid of a problem and that it does yeah. not strain, yeah. uh, you know, the means of the United States. Like, we're, we're done straining ourselves and extending ourselves. So we're just shutting down the door and we're going to take care of ourselves because we're wounded and this is me time. But me time is also, you know, having better trade deals because that's what makes... 
the glory of the economy. Like it's making it about the economy and not so much because I think he does. He's not very well versed in the political arena either. So instead of like these wars, he's just like. We're shutting it down. Well, he's doing something that Republicans done in the sense that I'm going to please my voters and I'm going to yes. worry about national Correct. interest above everything else, even though it would cost America a high price on the international level. You know, that's that is something that I can say is Republican in the sense I'll base my international policy based on my national one kind of thing. I think it's a little short sighted. Um, but how about we take a little break and then come back and talk about the American dream? Yes, please. All right. You're listening to District Arcas on Full Service Radio. Here, yeah, I'm going to introduce a Durka from Yemen, Sama. Hi, hello. Salam. And a Durka from Algeria, Aloha. This is me. Marhaba, um, marhaba. As it turns out, we're living in the District of Colombia, and we get together to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital. Yeah, we're in District of Columbia. That's the capital by default, right? Yes. So, all right. So, we say that twice in the introduction. This is my first time. And our topics include many, many things such as feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, and socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in between. And well done. Yes. Well thank, done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just realized we say capital twice. Well, I always, I always say something off the top of my head anyway. I mean, it's Durka Durka, so it's bound to be like a little redundant. Um, Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. <laughs> Muhammad Jihad. So we are talking about the American dream. Yeah, so we, right before the break, we were talking about current events that we read, and then we slightly touched on the Muslim ban, which happened today. And I think this will go as a really, really ugly day for, I think it's, it's going to be a way that I, I hope to never see America stay away lepers today. Um, stay where so, you are. So it'll be it'll be it's a sad day, really. It really is. You know, I mean, for a lot of people who are trying to bring in their families, and it, it's just it's it's sad and it's crushing uh, because not only was it practiced, but now you have the Supreme Court saying that this is valid. It'll provide another solution. Like, okay, you close this door, but people are gonna organize themselves, you know, within the region, and they won't. To me, it's just going to force the situation to be more creative and eventually it'll lead to some kind of solution. This I mean, door being closed is, is sad, but... Maybe. I mean, we live, we live in a time where things 
seem to progressively get worse. <laughs> like maybe Five All should have stayed in Russia. You know, you, you, you've seen the cartoon Five All, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Five All goes west. Mm-hmm. That's the American dream. He's coming to the land of free and the land of cheese. So I figured it would be worth reading the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of the American dream. Ah, great minds think alike. Ah, there you go. You, then you should take it. Well, I didn't do the American, the Merriam-Webster one. I just okay. did Google. I did the five Google, Google dictionary. Let's see what yours comes up with. It just says the ideal that every U.S. citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. See, interesting. Um, U.S. citizen part, right? Right. right. The, the dictionary definition does not have citizen in it. Yeah, um, because that's a new addition. See, the, 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 the dictionary says a happy way of living that's thought of by many Americans is something that can be achieved by anyone in the U.S. Yes. By working hard and becoming successful. So, so that's two very different things. So you, have, you have the initial American dream and I have the American dream 2.0. Trump's American dream. Yeah, yeah. but that's funny because the happiness, that's very, I wasn't expecting that because in, in my... The, the, the pursuit of happiness it. is a huge part of America. Yeah, but to me, the American dream is like the idea that you work hard and you succeed, but you have to work hard. That's the old format to me. It's like you come here, you work super hard, and you're almost guaranteed some kind of a success. But talking about the pursuit of happiness, so, did you watch The Pursuit of Happiness? I only listened to it by way of Kid Cudi. It was the, the movie with Will Smith in it. It was... It was no. really yeah, good. It was. The one in the bathroom with his kid? Um, I mean, he... I, I don't know what bathroom you're referring to, but he kind of like goes homeless and he has his child with him and he would have to work. I mean, he was an educated man who really had to push through a lot to survive. And it was just to highlight social injustices, you know? And the way that even someone like him who can wear a suit and present himself a certain way, still struggled to, you know, he lived in a shelter and would hide it for a while. I mean, I watched this movie when I was a lot younger, but it really, it, it sent a powerful message. I think coming to America, one, don't you think it's kind of ironic that they call it the American dream? The idea of a dream being as the term to use what it is that we're describing like the idea that it, it, it's not a reality, yet we still pursue it. for it to happen. You I can't mean, be woke. <laughs> you're pursuing something that's not real. They're putting the hormones in the food. Why could, yeah, no, it's the American dream. It's the American illusion, the American nightmare, maybe. I'm living the nightmare part. Well, it could well, be used to sell things, It has too. more appeal than like yeah. the American doctrine, the American way. There was a recent movie in theaters. I think it was like Brooklyn or something. It was about a, an actress that came from... It was about a girl who came from um, Ireland and how she made it in New York. And it was about the arrivals to Ellis Island. And I think that movie was kind of important in the sense to remind all Americans that your ancestors were immigrants and refugees, but they had an opportunity to come and build and participate in this nation. And I think what I'm understanding today is that as long as you're white and you're coming from Europe, we could kind of integrate you a lot better than if you were brown and not of our culture. Um, but it took some heat. Like every wave of immigrants had to take some form of heat. And then the browner it got, the more integrated. So mm-hmm. everybody got some Do you guys- like Irish, Italians. But you're talking about Will Smith and you're talking about this Irish girl. I'm interested in your American dream. Like how, how you came, like are you living your American dream? Did you... Come to live the American dream? I did not come to live the American dream. Yeah. <laughs> did you, Lily? Um, 
Not really, because the circumstances uh, within which I came were my father was sent here, so I was a student, then I decided to go to college. So I didn't, I feel, flee, I feel I didn't flee, I didn't flee like a bad situation right. to come and further my opportunities. It was kind of circumstantial, and then I liked it. So to me, it was more like I'm living the American fantasy, like whatever I've been... American fantasy. Yeah, it's the American fantasy. Like it's like whatever I've been nurturing, you know, listening to music, watching movies, and every time these... Realities juxtapose. It's kind of nice, but well, it's cultural. Always, um, yes. I mean, like, see, like my family is definitely fits the bill of coming for the American dream. They were Sicilian immigrants. I'm third generation. They were poor in Sicily and looking to for a better life. And that's like the classic immigrant story for yeah. Americans, especially white European Americans. Yeah. Um, so, like, in a weird way, I guess, yeah, I'm the third generation. My, I'm the first person to go to college in my family. So, like, on paper, I guess I am kind of that. That's mm-hmm. the American dream. I think this is why I can't claim the American dream, because my ancestors had it better than me. <laughs> and in a sense, I came here to get an education and go back home. And mm. that wasn't the plan. But I think what happened is I decided a few years ago that my life is going to be in the U.S. And I will be, I am a first-generation American. And I'm establishing, you know, imagine me in parallel with your great grandfather or great grandmother. And here I am trying to establish roots in a city during a time when we're not welcome. We're not liked. We are just here in their imagination to invade their resources and take their jobs and uh, perpetuate fear and hate. And so I thought you lived in D.C. Yes, but I'm talking about the greater American mentality, what I'm speaking to, what I'm dealing Is with. Is that what you dealt with coming here? Like, were you Sean Dupont or were you... I think that um, my college opportunity allowed me to mix with upper class Americans. So because of that, there was an assumption that I was of the same economic class. And because of that assumption, I was able to fit in better. But only after university, I realized the colorism of the United States and just the assumptions that come with it. You know, um, if you're brown and you're serving at a restaurant, nobody questions why that is regardless of your age. But if you are white and you look a certain way and you're serving at a restaurant, people would be like, oh, why is she serving at a restaurant? I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you a bit on this because when I came here, all the servers were white. I hate saying... Anyway. And now I find it more diverse. So I feel like maybe... It's the opposite of when people, so white people, they'd be feeling safer that this is, you know, the service industry. And now the service industry has changed is more inclusive. So I don't think people, well, let me but I definitely, I definitely saw that, but not at the service industry level. Because when I came here, everybody was white in the service industry. That was, I think there was such a stigma on being brown and serving that people would have like, I, I don't want. No, let me tell you when, the, when allowing brown people became a thing. When gentrification expanded, when yes. white people started it the need for coming it. into areas that are historically not theirs, they needed to have staff that look like the people of the area. So they don't, don't look so. as gentrifiers. The, the, the off- yep. I, th- I think it created like a, a demand. Like the, it grew so f- fast and there's so many establishment opening and you have to kind of you can't be that picky I so eventually like economy like brings this social change but it comes from a more pragmatic so place based on my experience in the restaurant industry um and I've, I've worked for a few years in the restaurant industry and i mean i realized that the hiring process is not random i mean it looks uh, visually fair but it's not you always have 
um, a mixed or white or young attractive host hostess and then not where you worked the, well the barbacks no it's true the barbacks were always um, Hispanic and probably didn't speak much English and then you know there was a hierarchy of some sort within the restaurant industry but where are you placed in that because yes Hispanics have their narrative I was here. a server and they come and they you know I was not most a hostess of the, huh I was a server. Yes. And in, in the hierarchy. But you have papers. Most of these busboys like are, uh, you know, on that razor. How and that's why it? they get exploited. Yes. But that's their immigrant story. Yes. What's yours? My story, again, you know, I'm saying that I came here and I, I had a good, a, a good image of America and I had a good experience at first because I was surrounding with a specific economic class that assumed that I was of the same economic class. As I drifted away from that, my color became more visible to me and my experience started to change because people didn't know what school I went to right away or what I do right away. And so there were more stereotypes projected onto me, which changed my American experience. And now, you know, fast forward 2018, I am in a city where there are houses put up for sale on almost every neighborhood. And the neighborhood of H Street was an area that up until 2008, None of my friends, or even 2010, not, 2013, none of my friends wanted to go to 8th Street because they were kind of scared of the area. There's only Rock and Roll Hotel and Little Miss Whiskeys and like another site, and nobody, nobody wanted to walk there. But wasn't the fact of being Yemeni and, you know, somewhat privileged uh, facilitate your career moves? My, my career moves were all over the place. <laughs> And had to do with my ambition and my pursuit of it. And, and didn't that pan out well? No, because what I am doing is I'm telling people about my country and about my background. So it, what, how it panned out is this. If I was here and I spoke English like this and I did not know how to explain to you the whole thing and I'm talking about, you know, Yemen up and down, nobody would hire me. The fact that I was able to perfect an American accent at least a northern one anyway, uh, helped me get ahead. I looked like an American in that I didn't cover my hair. I did not uh, walk around with signs. There are Americans who cover their hair. I know, but I didn't walk around with signs that said, hey, Durka, like look at this person, she's a foreigner. And I speak English like someone who is born and raised here. And I think that facilitated, you know, I don't look like a first generation American. So you're saying you have to assimilate in order to be. Absolutely. You were saying this was part of your American parkour was assimilation. Part of my success in my career is that I can speak to Americans in a way that they can understand. And I think, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of awful to say, but I was watching a, a documentary on Netflix and it was called The Staircase. And it was about a guy who was in prison. And one of the experts that they were bringing to talk to uh, the jury was of Chinese origin. And um, actually, I don't even know if he's of Chinese origin. He was an Asian. Um, and the person was, uh, they kind of set up a situation where the expert is presenting to a random uh, audience to kind of just... Uh, gauge and see how the jury's going to react to his testimony and he presented defense but the people in who were listening to him they said they couldn't connect with him because of his accent and you know that that segment of that show was so revealing of how they view the other and because of his accent they thought that this expert was lying they thought that his uh, testimony wasn't valid they couldn't connect with him and that they preferred someone who spoke differently and I think, yes, assimilation is a huge part of it. 
you know, I, I, you know, the one thing is that I think you're more integrated than assimilated, to be honest. I mean, you're how so? I mean, you're by by way of all your opinions and what you stand for. I mean, but when you meet someone, you, you don't, don't I mean, you still, don't meet their opinions. And this is the thing about America is they they take a look at you. And then they know you based on your appearance. Appearance I don't is know. such I a big thing. Yes, appearance is such a big thing. But I feel like here, as if, if, if you pitch something good, if they can commodify it, then they'll let you in, which is not the case in Europe, which is why I'm here. Because in Europe, it's really crippling to be brown, like to be Arab, to be North African, yeah. to be like, I don't think there's the same stigma here. I think the stink here is really on... It's coming up. You know, being African-American is really detrimental. But like, as far as we're concerned, we kind of get the benefits of, you know, as long as they don't know we're Muslim, that's when it kind of gets controversial. So that's what but I'm other saying. other than that, you're kind of allowed some benefits. And especially if you come from a certain type of privilege. I think if you are second, third generation, it's easier than being first generation. Because you were raised an American, you know? Uh, coming from the outside is becoming nowadays harder. Like, oh, you're just coming now? Like, this country is already established. We've already had our immigration wave. You know, we're done with that. But to touch up quickly on a previous point about the American dream, uh, what I was saying about H Street is that this area that nobody was allowed to go in or, like, scared of going in. They, they were always allowed to go in, but they were always kind of creating these own borders for themselves. Like, we can't go there. It's too dangerous. Houses are selling on H Street for $1.5 million. And that area was, like, a place where nobody wanted to go. And now there's crazy competition. You know, a house would go on sale. It would be down in two days. And looking at myself here... Part of me having an American dream means that I would like to have some roots here because I will be a first generation of God knows how many generations to come. Um, so the idea is that I would like to buy a house, but I don't think that I, at my like in my 30s, can afford a house that's 1.5 million and also do all the that other things that I'm trying the to American do. That is not the American dream. That is not the American spirit. The American if you can think it, you can will it, you got to stay positive. This is the American dream. Like whatever you dream can happen, you got to believe in yourself, Selma, and, and you'll make it happen because that's the American dream. I can't dream. believe they want to call it a dream and they also want people to believe in it. It's almost like the idea of like religion, you know, having faith in something. That doesn't, that is, that doesn't bother me. Like what bothered me, like you're, you're really going into the nitty gritty of like what it means to be an immigrant and like the opportunities and and also you know I as that first generation the American dream was like an, an, an idea that's more than okay maybe I didn't because I don't have papers like you so I'm not as rooted in the idea of being an immigrant I'm not an immigrant I just live here so one day you'll look back no no it's not just that it's like I cannot participate as much as I want it as in, in what it is to be the American dream or fantasy or what it is or whatever I'm constricted by my papers so I'm not even into looking into H Street and to buy things and all of that so I mean in a way, I'm in saying a way that I can't do in a that way either. you're being very persnickety about your American dream I'm saying I can't even like look that far because you know I'm still Algerian but why can't you but why can't you get your papers i mean i, I like to our audiences what's the problem with well you? because i'm algerian you can't just switch like you switch shirt it's a it's you a apply, nationality right you know and the process of applying no is, it's tedious i mean you don't need a band to make it tedious well i also got the nationality and also i don't know that this is what i want i, I already left here because i felt the american quote, like dream or whatever didn't didn't satisfy but it wasn't 
a real estate problem. I just felt like I was becoming the spectator of my own life. The real estate problem comes later. Like I yes. applied to be an American citizen and I had to go through the process and I waited five years. And, and that's cool. And that's probably reviews. something that a lot of immigrants go through. But there was, I'm talking about like the, the happiness, the pursuit of happiness, what it means to be happy, what it means to be here. And do you feel satisfied being here? And I left because I started to feel as though I was starting to be content by... I'm sorry, it might sound trap, but a, a, a combination of consumerism and entertainment. I felt like this was a society where you go to the movies and you live your passions through the superheroes and through the narratives of these, you know, elegant storylines and you get all the, the juice there and then you get out and you're hyped up for a minute and then you go eat or drink something and you get a nice sofa and you get a TV and I was well, like, I will fantasy. not... And I was like, if that's the American, I don't want that. Like, I want more interpersonal relationships. And when I got out of college, it was pretty, things were pretty cut. It was like, you're either a student and you're wilding out and you have to just purge. I don't know what it's like. It's this idea of being super hedonistic or doing anything in college. But then you got to tie up your act. And then it's the nine to five. And then you got to work hard. And I was like, I do not identify to that. The hedonism part is like an age thing. It's not about the hedonism. It's like the idea that things are segmented between like these four years are meant for that, but then you have to work hard and be that person and start purchasing this and the mortgage and the thing. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is stress. I don't want that. There are traits of me being a student. They're always going to carry over. I wanted to find that balance. And I thought, let's go to Europe where you can be, you know, post-college but still not having it together and it's cool and poetic and you meet other minds there's something that i didn't find here that still sounds like a fantasy too you won't find it there either no but now it's growing you have people redefining what it means to have a job you know and and, you know according to their own terms creating their own realms identities are more flexible but when i left i didn't like this about the american dream the whole like there's a time for this and there's a time for that and there's no in between it's either you work all week and then you binge drink on the weekends or your student and I wanted the life in between and and whatever was the American dream at the time w- was failing me in that sense but when I came back things were a little bit more flexible people started caring more about like the true happiness and and eating organic tomatoes and, and doing yoga and and having hard time adulting and they would you know yeah, they would oh, have just to find my tooth on the that. microphone well check of reality you know I'll never adult but just the fact that people were willing to talk about this. So that's, before, that's what stays with you. I mean, the house is no, going to stay on street. But you also have to afford it's, the organic food and to afford all these things. Like, yes, you have to realize that D.C. is a rich city. You yeah, are no meeting. doubt. Privilege is a big part of it. But that so, didn't even exist even if you were privileged before. You didn't have these options. Like, lifestyles are growing. Oh, so and before, so is this show. Apparently, you're before showing you we, to watch. Before we cut out, I kind of wanted to see if... Jack, how do you feel? Are you living the American dream? I think so, by definition. Just thinking about my family's journey from Sicily and all that, I think that's kind of the textbook thing. But I'm like, I'm white. I mean, Sicil- my, my Sicilian family were darker than I am, but um, it, it feels easier, I guess. Um, but I think I am living the American dream. I'm I, think doing the- better th- I think doing better than your parents is part of it. I think it's the upward mobility. Exactly. Um, and by that... Yes, I definitely am. Um, because my family, we grew up on food stamps and welfare. And like here I am in a fancy-ass hotel cool. with the luxury of this. Power. So that's the American dream, I guess. Um, right? I mean. With two Durkas. Well, the thing yeah. is, <laughs> I only hope that 
the current immigrants have the opportunity to do that. Also, it's, it's don't you think, to, to wrap it up, like it's faded. I think people are no longer seeking an El Dorado. Like there are no, you were talking about like the new waves. I think people have it more straight in their heads. Like unless you're really a refugee or political asylum. Don't I think that's America. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, I think that idea of heading west to prosper is an idea that's also outmoded and outdated. Like people are going other places to prosper. I think a lot of people want to prosper in their own country. Exactly. They and they come to me and they're like, oh, go back to your shit. I was like, gladly gladly but it's this idea that if you're here it's because you're escaping something and it's not always the case yeah, yeah true. By my existence. so just so. to wrap it up we talked about the american t- american wrapping dream. it up wrapping it up this is a burrito and <laughs> or hijab which we should talk about oh, soon that's, that's we're not gonna touch that now <laughs> so thank you guys for listening this is the strict Durkas, and we are live at full service radio in the line hotel come surf with us next week on full service radio thanks for listening to this program on full service radio broadcasting and recording from the line hotel in adams morgan washington dc Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.